Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the auditorium of AccessibleWorld.org to our special program series. The date is Tuesday evening, January 26, 2010. We want to thank you all very much for being here. And to introduce our honored guest, I give you one of the hardworking leaders of, uh, um, of Bard Talk which is a great list. If you're not in that list, get into it. Bard Talk. The other great leader is Alan Lemley. But this, this gentleman I'm going to introduce is Dave Bond. Dave, the microphone is yours. Okay, thanks, Bob. And uh, hello there, Lloyd. Nice to uh, hear you in there. Yeah, this is going to be a good program, and uh, I just, uh, I'm just privileged to be able to be here along with everybody else. And uh, it's nice to, uh, to have this opportunity. Um, I'm not sure what I really can say uh, other than uh, just to introduce uh, Lloyd as the uh, he gave me a couple little things here I see if I can get this right uh, he is the senior uh, project engineer has been or is I guess the senior project engineer um, that's his title with the NLS and he's been there for uh, 34 years and uh, doing doing some math there it looks like that's probably been his entire career, but he can perhaps uh, elaborate that uh, on that for just a minute. But uh, anyway, uh, I'll just give this over to, to Lloyd and let him go with this. And uh, I know that uh, I think we're all looking forward to hearing uh, what Lloyd has to say. So uh, take it away there, Lloyd. Nice, uh, nice meeting you. Okay. Good evening, everybody. My name is Lloyd Rasmussen, and uh, I'm talking to you from an undisclosed underground location north of Washington, D.C., but uh, actually if you looked me up in the, some of the radio amateur websites, you could probably figure out where I am. Uh, I just have a few notes here, and as my wife would really criticize me right now for just saying, well, I'm not very well prepared, but that is what's happening. I uh, grew up in Iowa, and... I first got interested in electronics probably around 1954. Uh, I was born on January 26th of 1947. And uh, by the time I was seven years old, I started listening to shortwave and reading Braille as I went to the School for the Blind in Vinton, Iowa. And uh, somewhere in the middle of third grade, I got my ham radio license. Not long after that, I got my first talking book records. They were coming from Illinois at that point. They were all on 33 RPM, and uh, uh, <clears throat> because that's the only mode that uh, talking books were produced in. A lot of the ones I got were from the 1930s. I didn't realize at that time that the reason, one of the reasons those records sounded so noisy and so scratchy was that I didn't have the right size phonograph needle on the talking book machine that they had uh, given me. You needed a larger stylus than what was being used in the 1950s to play those records from the 1930s so that the phonograph needle would not be lying down in the bottom of the groove but would be able to contact the walls of the groove a little higher up. Anyway, I listened to a lot of no noisy talking books as well as reading lots of Braille books. Went through high school, and I went through college at Iowa State University, graduated in 1969. I did work at Collins Radio Company for a couple of years, 
doing some receiver design work. And then I went through a period of being unemployed, as I know a lot of blind people have done. Uh, I've had, I've done my share of that too. I went into, went into the vending facility program in Iowa. I ran a snack bar for a while, but a job opened up at NLS in Washington, D.C., and I took it. I moved out east. I had traveled, you know, to some places before 1975, but I certainly hadn't lived outside of Iowa for any length of time until 1975. When I got to NLS, we were uh, just experimenting with four-track cassettes. We didn't actually have anything but experimental cassettes in that format. We were using 15 16 inches per second half-track for the cassettes, and we were producing most of our books on 8 RPM phonograph records. The decision had been made during 19, around 1959 or 1960 to slow the records down from 33 RPM to 16 RPM so they would, uh, uh, well, initially in the 1930s, the 33 RPM records were 12-inch diameter. They were cut using uh, about 125 grooves per inch, pretty wide grooves, and you could only get about 15 minutes per side. I would get some of these books home. In my hometown, you had to uh, walk down to the post office, pick up the mail, bring it back. So that was a good exercise to bring one of these 11-pound books. You could uh, almost say that an 11-hour book would probably weigh 11 pounds. That was quite a bit for a little kid to carry back. And, of course, in those days, we weren't using canes either, but uh, that meant I had both hands to carry it in, I guess. Uh, all right. Cassettes. We were getting into, NLS produced its first uh, experimental cassettes in about 1968 or 1969. And so there was a long overlap where we did cassettes and phonograph records both. We began to ramp up production of cassette players, 1971, 72. Uh, the C74 is a model that a lot of people loved because the sound quality was a little bit better than average for 15 sixteenths. It was made by uh, Sanyo under the GE brand. One of its problems, however, was that it was a very difficult machine to repair. They didn't really design it in such a way that people could uh, easily get the various parts out of that player if it needed any servicing. We went on to uh, build the C75. We built 100,000 of the C76 and uh, pretty much standardized on the cassette deck design beginning with the C76. But we didn't stop making record players at that point. Uh, phonographs had moved from units with, a, with vacuum tubes and a wooden case in the uh, mid-1960s was uh, when the last of those were built. Some of those in the 1950s, by the way, were built uh, at sheltered workshops for the blind in Pennsylvania. And earlier than that, a lot of them were built by the Works Pro Progress Administration during the Depression. But by the 1960s, they had gone to a more regular type of manufacturing operation. Many of them were built outside of Chicago. That's the uh, phonograph talking book players that had uh, a plastic case. People didn't like them as much because they didn't sound quite as good they were, but they were lighter weight. You had to admit that. We did not uh, stop doing 
rigid phonograph records until 1987. By that time, we actually had enough cassette players for everybody, and we had uh, developed our first easy machine, the player that could automatically play through all four tracks of a cassette. I guess I'm not going to explain everything, but I do plan to talk for almost 20 minutes or so before I start taking questions. Give you a little idea maybe what my background are, is and what some of the kinds of questions are that I might be able to answer. Even in the 1980s and earlier, there were signs that someday audio might become digital. When I took my uh, senior year, senior level course in electrical engineering in 1969, we had some information about digital communication systems and I learned about pulse code modulation or PCM back in 1969. It was just being used for space probes and stuff like that, so it wasn't really uh, as though this was going to uh, be an application in my life very soon. But uh, by 1982, compact discs started to be produced, and in 1984, Philips came to NLS trying to sell us on the idea that NLS ought to start doing talking books on CDs. So we had heard about CDs clear back in 84. You wonder, I'm sure, a lot of times, why do things take as long as they do? But there are a lot of reasons for those things taking as long as they do. By 1987, the American Printing House and the American Foundation for the Blind did some experiments in digital recording and digital processing uh, for us. Unfortunately, most of that material is lost. A lot of it was well, pretty much all of it was recorded on VHS tapes. There was a system that was in place at that time that you could record PCM data on VHS tapes. But if you didn't exercise those tapes, uh, and if you didn't keep the equipment to play them on, in particular the PCM processor, and if you didn't eventually transfer this stuff to another medium, you lost it. And uh, that's basically what happened. We've, when we went back in 2005 to look at what we had, there were too many errors in playing back this material for us to be able to use those things that had been digitized in 1987. In 1990, uh, Mr. Silkey and some other agency directors had a meeting in Dublin, Ireland, to discuss what should be the future of talking books. And in 1991, Several of us at NLS wrote a paper that was presented in Moscow uh, right at about the same time that Boris Yeltsin was taking over from uh, the president before him, the big revolution in August of 1991 in Moscow. We laid out what our requirements are, what we saw as NLS's future. By 1992 to 94, in the engineering laboratory, I was doing some experiments with MPEG Layer 2 audio compression and MPEG Layer 3 eventually uh, by 1994. And we could begin to see how we were going to get talking books down to a reasonable amount of size if we decided to go to a digital format. In 1995 or thereabouts, the DAISY Consortium began to form, especially among the European countries. Sweden was a major proponent. The Royal National Institute for the Blind was another uh, major uh, proponent. They had been talking to us for several years about CDs. One of the reasons many of those countries were ahead of NLS to go to CDs 
was that they did not adopt the 15 16 four-track format. Instead, they stuck to 1 and 7 8 two-track cassettes or other formats such as the Clark and Smith, uh, I think it was an eight-track cartridge machine. And uh, especially in the case of the cassettes, uh, people had to procure their own players. You did not have uh, the agency that produced the books also loaning out and repairing the players. So the economics were a little different, and uh, they had more incentives, they felt, to uh, switch to a CD player format, and will let the patrons uh, purchase the CD players also. And if they break, the consumer owns, owns both halves. Um, in 1997, NLS got together with other agencies and with the National Information Standards Organization to develop a talking book standard. And it wasn't long before the DAISY Consortium became a part of that operation and the part of uh, developing those specifications. A lot of experiments went on, a lot of planning, uh, a lot of prototyping went on, as far as NLS was concerned, from uh, 1998 onward. We began to write down some requirements for what do we think a player should be able to do, what are some of the other details of our system, how loud should the speaker be, and so forth. By 2002, we actually had an ANSI NISO digital talking book standard on the books. What we were still developing right at that point uh, along with the DAISY Consortium, was a validator. These books are rather complicated. They're probably more complicated than they need to be, considering that we're only doing audio in NLS books. But the fact remains, we wanted to go with the standard, and we needed to validate that all the pieces went together. So we developed programs that looked at these various XML files, and looked at the various audio files to, at least from a technical point of view, say, this book looks like it should play. Now, it may not make any sense, but it's a valid book, and a player should be able to play it in a predictable manner. I want to mention the names of some of the people who have, were really instrumental. I could go on and on about people who were part of this development process. Henry Paris was the chief of our materials development division at NLS through the 1990s and uh, up, to, uh, up to about 1997 or 1998. Brad Corman took his place after that. His expertise really was in project management, and that turned out to be a very important component of what we were doing. He died of cancer uh, by 2005. John Cookson was the head of the engineering section. He was my boss for much of this time. And uh, he wrote a lot of papers about what a talking book should be, and he kind of, you know, kind of laid the groundwork for a lot of things as far as, for instance, the concept that if NLS builds a player, a lot of it's going to be software, and NLS ought to own that software so that NLS can maintain it. That was really one of his uh, parts. Tom McLaughlin was an engineer in the quality assurance section. He uh, resigned from NLS in 2005, but before he did that, he developed a player 
for talking books that run runs in Internet Explorer and uses JavaScript. It's one of the more useful things I've ever seen uh, done with JavaScript. Almost 300,000 bytes of code to play digital talking books, to go through the navigation, to help us check the transitions between one side and another. This work was extended by a couple of contractors afterward, but uh, Tom McLaughlin got the thing started. He also wrote a document type definition in our standard for how bookmarks can be saved. And even though bookmarks are not exported by most of the players, the way they are saved on a hard drive or something pretty much follows what Tom McLaughlin invented, along with the rest of our NISO committee. Michael Moody chaired the NISO committee for a great deal of time. He retired from NLS in, I think, 2006, but uh, he contributed a huge amount of work in getting this process going. Don Smith was the head of our quality assurance section, and uh, he helped us in writing the specifications, and he tested several hundred digital talking books in 2004. Uh, he died in December of 2004 before the process really got very much further along. And anytime you get one of these older books from about DB 53,000 or earlier, it has a couple of special announcements at the beginning telling you that there's not very much markup in this book. That's his voice. It was recorded only a few days before he died. Michael Katzman is, came on board at NLS as the head of the engineering section and uh, is now the chief of materials development division. I would say he has been a key person in actually getting this program from where it was in 2005 to where it is now. He just did so much work and uh, he took it on as a challenge and really met the challenge and we all owe a great debt to him. Neil Bernstein and Michael Martys both work in our automation department now. And some of you have talked to Neil concerning uh, the BARD site. Michael Martys is his boss. He's also written a lot of software. Judy Dixon had a great deal of input into this. And uh, another name you probably never hear, Avi Shapiro or Avram Shapiro. He's worked at NLS since about 2001 uh, behind the scenes doing a lot of the programming that has been involved, especially with the validators and with keeping our servers running and so forth. There are a lot of other people's too, uh, people involved as well. In 2005, I stepped into the group that was doing quality assurance of the books. We had been having people record books for us since about 2002, record digital files as WAV files. We recorded them on CDs. By the time we stopped using CDs for this, we produced about 90,000 discs, about 90,000 CDs, one for each side or 88-minute track of a book. We had a lot of problems to solve, especially during the era that I was working on this in 2005, getting everybody onto the same page. We had validators. We had had Telex and Minnetonka Software develop a an authoring program called uh, the Low Complexity Mastering System, which most of our studios ended up using. Some other people developed some of their own methods for putting markup into the books. 
American Printing House for the Blind developed their own software, Book Wizard Producer. We had to get all of these books coming from different tools to validate and to have the markup that we wanted and uh, without too many mistakes. Eventually, quality assurance became a job for a larger number of people than it had been before. I think I should mention for a minute the stages that a book goes through in QA, as I understand it at this point. We get audio files so that we can tell how the book was narrated. We get them in uh, uncompressed or possibly lossly compressed, losslessly compressed format, and uh, people go over them for the narration, for mistakes. We can't check everything, but we try to check as much as we can. Then the system branches off into two different branches, because all the books that are recorded at this point and up through, contracted up through September of this year, will be uh, done both in digital format and in cassette format. And when I say that we stop production of cassettes in September of 2010, it'll probably, in my opinion, it'll probably take another year before you see the end of all the cassette books coming out of the various duplicating contractors, because it takes a while. Uh, cassette copies. A person checks an Intermaster to see whether we can make, which is now a compressed MP3 file or a 3GP file, to see whether somebody could make a duplicate from it. That same person checks a control copy, the first cassette copy that's come off the line. Other people check the digital talking book version. The, the producers produce the DTB, whether it's the NLS Studio or uh, AFB or APH or anybody else. When they submit their narration, they also submit a DTB. We've got to see if that's okay, if there are any problems with it. And uh, that's often, I believe, still done with an unencrypted version of the DTB. DTB has to go through an encryption process. That output needs to be spot checked. I believe that at about that point, if everything passes and we haven't had to send anything back, uh, it's not long after that that we could put that book up onto the BARD website. But meanwhile, other things have to happen. Uh, cartridge copies need to be made of the more modern, more recent books, starting with last year's contract, with many of the books in that contract. Cartridge copies are made, and uh, those need to be checked. Do the labels on the cartridges match up with what the book has? You know, we can't check all the copies, but we can check one and uh, see if these things match. So that's many of the stages of QC, but that also kind of can explain perhaps why a cassette copy will come out at one time and a digital copy will come out at a different time. I think I'll mention here that probably all of the material that's on the BARD website, it may not all end up on cartridges, or at least it may not end up in large numbers of copies. Because perhaps 10,000 of those books were produced before we had players, and uh, people had the opportunity and still have the opportunity to read them on cassette. And uh, so that's how that works. 
in, in 2005, we kind of changed direction with what, how we were going to compress the books. Michael Katzman did some research and found uh, a lot of good could be said for the adaptive multi-rate wideband extended audio codec. This is a codec that uh, com audio compression method that starts out, the base part of it is the same as GSM. GSM is the system that's used on cell phones in most of the world and on AT&T and T-Mobile. It's not the system that's used by Verizon and Sprint. But it's, it is the GSM is what's used on those other two cell phone networks. AMR Wideband Extended builds on that codec to extend its bandwidth and to improve the fidelity. We found that we could get just really excellent reproduction of voice and passable reproduction of music at 24 kbits per second, which was better than anything we could ever get out of MP3 or AAC or some of the other codecs that were around in 2005. So we decided to uh, convert everything. We had the WAV files, so we actually had to run all the books for a period of time through a whole bank of computers to re-encode the WAV files as AMR wideband extended. That occurred mostly in 2006 and 2007. That's how most of those books got onto the BARD site. We discovered along the way, of course, that the talking book versions we had in MP3 format, sometimes the timing that was encoded in them wasn't the same as the timing of the WAV files that we thought had made the MP3 files. So we eventually had to have a process to verify in the encoded file that this uh, is a checksum of the WAV file that created this thing. So we've made quite a large number of mistakes along the way. Back in 1999, we put web braille onto the internet. People could begin to download braille-ready embossable files of books. In 2004, we began to put books up in MP3 format, or I should say magazines up, as a test of a download system, and a few of you were participating in that beginning at the very beginning of 2004. Starting in 2005, we let a design contract for the player. This was the prime contractor was Battelle. This is a large uh, research, uh, nonprofit, beltway bandit, whatever you want to call it, in Columbus, Ohio. They had as subcontractors Humanware in Canada, the National Federation of the Blind, and uh, the Trace Research and Development Center. People who worked on this project will tell you that there were interminable phone conferences going back and forth in 2005, 2006, 2007 to get these players built, get them designed, work out all the kinks, figure out what was going to be in them, what features they were going to have, what uh, the software should be able to do, what it should uh, not be able to do. And uh, somewhere along in all of that, Humanware came out with the Victor Stream. I would say that the software for the Stream 
and the software for the NLS player did have common origins, but they began to diverge early in 2007, and they've been diverging ever since. Uh, NLS has taken the software in its own direction. The hardware design was for the NLS player was pretty well laid down by the middle of 2006. We had our first uh, prototypes into the building in September of 2006. In 2007, we did a lot of field testing, especially for the standard player. And I was just going to mention, there's this saying that always goes around, a camel is a horse designed by a committee. And if nothing else, the combination talking book machine, which is something that we built, we first began to design it back in the 70s, worked on it some more in the 80s, finally released it in 1992. That really was a camel. It weighed 12 pounds, had four motors in it, a 12-volt NICAD battery that was non-standard. It cost us a lot of money to build them, and people didn't want them very much. Uh, because they were so heavy and because the phonograph record was going out by the time we actually got it done and could begin to really manufacture that device. So it was an embarrassment to those of us involved in design, at least. So I've always said, well, I hope we don't repeat the experience of the combination machine. And I think that the design-by-committee process that went on for the digital players worked a whole lot better. I think we did learn our lesson. The BARD website went up and went uh, uh, live as an open website last April. I talked to Neil Bernstein today just to get some statistics about uh, where it's at. There are currently, as of this afternoon, 17,334 book titles on BARD. There are 1,447 magazine issues. There are 12,902 patrons who have accounts on BARD, and of those, 10,230 are active in some, by some definition or other. Patrons have downloaded 918,135 items as of early this afternoon. I'm sure by now it's uh, closing in on 918,200. Now, these are... Uh, things that I, uh, you probably wonder, why am I, why did I title this talk The Evolution and the Devolution of the Digital Talking Book Program? I just wanted to say, I guess before I start opening it up for questions, that I am speaking unofficially. I should have said that at the beginning. When I say we, it does include the rest of the NLS, but if I say that NLS is going to do something or we're going to do something, Uh, That is not necessarily a commitment. It's only my uh, best guess as to what's going to happen. And what's the devolution part of this? The BARD website is going to be set up so that each state runs at least their branding, their address and phone numbers and so forth will be part of the BARD site. They will be handling the registration of new patrons, the uh, assignment of, uh, you know, notifying of player manufacturers uh, if somebody has a non-NLS player that they want to authorize. All of those processes are going to be going on on a state-by-state basis. We have already said 
we want support of the players themselves to be done on a state-by-state basis. We don't have as many uh, volunteer repair people as we used to have. People are dying. <clears throat> the telephone companies aren't as uh, monolithic as they used to be. We've made the digital talking book player, so it's a whole lot easier to repair. But already, telephone pioneers have uh, identified a couple of the problems that have occurred with the uh, first players that have come off the assembly line. We did 5,000 players last spring as a uh, pilot in eight states. Since then, we've started cranking them out. I'm not sure what the current number of players is in the field, but I think it's well over 50,000 with probably 30,000 or more in the pipeline between Japan <coughs> between Japan and uh, Allentown, Pennsylvania and the libraries and distribution. So I think with that I better go get myself a drink of water and uh, we will continue and we'll start taking some questions. I hope that people heard all of this. We sure did, uh, Lloyd, an excellent presentation. Let me say while, while Lloyd's getting water, uh, first, if you have a question and you're on microphone, hit F8, write the word question. And Ruthann uh, will recognize you. I don't see Ron here tonight. He usually can be, but I think it's his birthday, so we'll let him have his birthday <laughs> off here on Accessible World. Uh, but Ruthann will just see your name and question, and we'll recognize you, and you go on the mic and talk. If you don't have a mic, uh, write your question. First question I see up there, I'll help a little bit. Lynn Evans had a question. He said, we love the old um, narrators. Uh, how far back will NLS go to digitalize the books? Will we hear uh, Alexander Scorby, uh, Burt Blackwell, some of those guys on digital books and so forth? That's my added thing to it. That's the uh, first question from Lynn. Let's see if Lloyd is back, right? Okay, I am back. And uh, first of all, I should say that we have not thrown away anything. We have <clears throat> 33 RPM records going back, most of them, to the beginning. I would also say about that, though, that we did not keep archival copies of anything. NLS, or the Division for the Blind in those early days, was the regional library for much of the southeastern part of the country. And when you get back to the 1930s in particular, we were only making maybe 125 copies of things for the whole nation. And eventually, by the 1960s, we ramped up to several hundred copies, but uh, we didn't really hold anything back. And when you look at those old phonograph records, the tendency is that side one is very scratched up because somebody played a little of it, and they said, oh, I don't like this, and they sent it back. But meanwhile, they had fumbled some, and the needle had uh, gone skidding across the record. The uh, books were recorded on directly to disc masters until the early 1950s, and magnetic tape began to be used in those days, but it was uh, on 10-inch reels. At uh, AFB tended to work at seven and a half inches per second on, uh, I guess, uh, somewhat thinner tape. APH worked at uh, three and three quarter inches per second, but the same the result was the same. We had large reels of tape, and uh, 
nobody was being paid to keep that stuff. So we really don't have too many good open reel masters until you get to uh, you start to see them at about RDRC 6000, which would have been books produced around 1973, 1974. Now that does include a lot of books that were produced since that time where the oxide is flaking off the tape and uh, so you have to bake the tape uh, for an hour or so, play it once uh, to keep from shedding oxide all over your playback heads and uh, you have other tapes that have other problems. We didn't have a very good quality control system to actually check what we received back in the 70s and the early 80s. Uh, well, it was getting better, but it was evolving. And uh, in some cases, we don't have a two-track. Instead, we have a four-track intermaster that was suitable for duplicating cassettes on a high-speed duplicator. And uh, we're running some of our reissues and re-recordings from those. There is no... I should also say that in the 70s and 80s, AFB and APH did take some of their older materials and re-record it to cassette. And uh, so in that process, about 200 books a year uh, are reissues if they had a tape that was halfway decent. I'll mention that the Alexander Scorby version of the King James Bible is in production. It's gone through quality assurance. It had to go back for a few changes, uh, but it's, it's going to be coming out. That was one of the cases where AFB worked over lots of stuff, and there's probably several generations of recordings in there. Some of it, uh, people can kind of tell that it, some of it came from phonograph discs and some of it came from open reel tape. And uh, it will vary somewhat in sound quality from one track to another, but I think you'll find that it's going to be uh, pretty good when we get it out. And that's not too long from now. The uh, Anyway... Some things were done in the 80s, and uh, for those things, you can find some fairly uh, uh, old-time narrators sometimes. Whether we will be able to go back and start working from phonograph records, I'm not really sure. There's no definite plan on the books that says we're going to do X number of these older titles, And but I know, we all know, that a lot of people are interested in some of the uh, narrators that came before. I should also mention, though, that because of the quality assurance, we didn't always check. I mean, we didn't even check some of the stuff produced before 1975. You can find a number of mistakes in these things. Also, uh, some people have noticed that before about 1978, American Printing House uh, thought it was a great idea to record in uh, a room with walls that echoed a lot. And as time went by, as you got closer to 1978, some of the people moved further and further back from the microphone, so it really began to sound like a cave. Uh, we asked them to retreat their walls, and they did around 1978-79. Anyway, there are a lot of uh, changes that occurred over the years, and I can't really state with any certainty uh, what we're going to do with all of the older material that we have. Some tapes are not really good for duplication and uh, books have to be re-recorded and they are all going through a process of QA and this is another reason why books that are in series don't end up coming out in sequence at all. Uh, they come out uh, when they're ready to come out 
and uh, we didn't even select all of them for conversion. We will probably not convert all of the stuff that we have on cassette to a digital format. That's It's pretty expensive, pretty time-consuming. Some of the materials are just, you know, you wonder how many people are really interested in that particular thing, and uh, you have to draw the line somewhere. So, anyway, I think I'm going on for too long, so I'm probably ready for another question. Ruthann, let me take one more from Jane Jordan. Basically says, why can't you have an uh, MLS player on computer since one was developed already? I think she heard your talk, and maybe you said that. Well, uh, when the player that was developed on a computer, that was for a somewhat earlier version of the standard. It only decodes MP3. It uses Windows Media Player version 6.4 or earlier, so basically it runs in Windows 98 or earlier. The main problem that we have about players that are run on computers, on PCs in particular, <clears throat> is that it's fairly easy to disassemble the code and break the encryption system. Uh, Intel, I'm sorry, not Intel, Amazon came out with a player for Kindle books last year, and by December, somebody had cracked it, and uh, the PC version of the player, so essentially, as I understand it, until they re-encrypt their Kindle books, uh, it's possible to decrypt all of the stuff, that all of the Kindle material uh, on a PC. Now, I wouldn't say that it's accessible if somebody did that, but uh, that's the problem. We, the Chafee Amendment says that our material must be in a specialized format. It doesn't really say that it must be encrypted. But I think there's a pretty good understanding, and history seems to bear this out, that the publishers aren't really thrilled about their material getting out in any form uh, that is at all uh, saleable to the public. And uh, we have to respect that. We have to work with that kind of system if we want to continue to work with the Chafee Amendment. And so the uh, for the foreseeable future, we're not going to have players on PCs. We may have them on other devices that are a little bit harder to break into. All right. Ruthann, do we have a question up there, please? Uh, Beth Terranova has a question. Hi, everybody. And first of all, happy birthday, Lloyd, and thank you for your presentation. I wanted to make a comment that, my favorite cassette player was the one that had speech compression, but unfortunately it didn't last very long. Now, my question concerns what I read on the BARD site that there is, we should not use the SanDisk um, uh, USB drives. We should instead use Kingston Data Traveler. Do you agree with that? And also, what is the largest capacity? that we can use. I've heard 16 gig, I've heard 32 gig. Thank you very much. Okay, it looked like somebody was starting to lean on their control key for a second. The, uh, yeah, I knew that was going to come up. I have tried to take on the responsibility of making the lists of drives that would work with the NLS player. We know we have a problem in this area, and it is still an unsolved problem. I can say some things probably that, that somewhat contradict what we have said in the past and somewhat contradict what the BARD, uh, BARD Talk FAQ says. 
there are many instances, or there are some instances, where you can leave U3 software on a drive or other software, and the drive will still work with our NLS player. The only effect is that it's got more directories to go through, and it uh, takes it more time to find all the books. Typically, uh, I have a drive here that's got 38 books on it, and it takes the player about five beeps uh, before it's completely built a bookshelf. But if it if your player has a, a small number of books and it beeps you know 10 or 15 or 20 25 times before it figures out what the bookshelf is, you're likely to have trouble with that drive. Uh, if not initially, you're likely to have trouble later. There are many SanDisk drives that I've found that don't work. I've got a Cruiser Titanium at work that is extremely slow, and it will work kind of using that hack that uh, David Bond told us about where you go into the user guide and come back out. Uh, that kind of fixes it, but uh, there are other SanDisk drives that work just fine. There are... The problem with trying to nail this down is that if you go to Amazon and look at the drives that they have for sale, last time I checked, there were about 120 brands of flash drives. And now, obviously, they're not made by 120 different companies. They're probably rebranding from things that are made by 25 companies or something. But over time, people change their processes. They change their USB controllers that are in the drives. That's really where the problem lies, is the USB controller. Can it wake up from a state where it was told by the player to go to sleep? If it cannot always wake up, then the player is going to say cartridge error or end of book or something else, depending on uh, how severe the problem is. And it may not say it until you've uh, played 20 minutes into the book, or it may say it very quickly. The... Uh, so, you know, I guess the the FAT32, as long as the drive has FAT or FAT32 formatting, not NTFS and not the new extended FAT that uh, Microsoft just came out with, uh, our player should be able to read it. That could go clear up to 32, 64, or more gigabytes. What I've seen on some of these larger drives, however, is that the more books you put on them, the slower the drive gets. And... Uh, especially if you talk, somebody said they'd plugged a one terabyte hard USB hard drive in, I would expect that might draw too much power. Uh, and uh, eventually the player would time out before it had a chance to find everything. So you really need to expect that some drives are going to work and some are not. There are even some SD card and SD card reader combinations that do work. Most of them don't in my experience, but there are some that do. Uh, you're going to have more predictable results if you use cartridges. I know there's been a lot of debate on the lists about that, but that's that's kind of where things are at the moment. Okay, Ruth Ann, do we have another question, please? And let's try to keep the question short because I know we have a lot of people <laughs> wanting to ask them. Okay, let's see who's next. Uh, Marsha Mackay has a question. Yes. Um, they uh, talk about uh, the uh, BARD being Braille and recorded downloads. Um, where are the Braille books? I see the talking books, but where are the Braille books? Uh, what's, what's going on there? Well, 
Braille will be incorporated into BARD at some point, but we don't really know exactly when that be. I would guess that things have to stabilize a lot with this, uh, uh, with many other things before we would incorporate Braille. At the time we do it, we might make changes. We might have the Braille books put up as a big zip file, and then you're going to be, uh, you or the playback device you use is going to be responsible for unzipping that into BRF format. I don't know what we're going to do or when we'll do it, but I would guess that it'll be at least a year from now before we begin to put Braille in. When we do, though, <clears throat> the passwords that are used on BARD uh, for the audio portion will probably be the same ones that you would use for Braille access. Let's see, Marsha Moses has a question. Well, thank you, Lloyd. What a wonderful uh, uh, talk you, you've given. Um, you mentioned the fact that uh, the states will be taking over as far as signing up for uh, the BARD site and so on. Uh, should those of us who are, are already registered uh, with the BARD site, will we have to re-register? Thank you. I don't think so. Uh, I would just say wait for instructions from your state to see what you're supposed to do. But uh, I don't think, I mean, they have the records already as to who is registered in their state. And uh, I think that's being taken care of in a fairly seamless manner. Okay, next question, Ruthann, please. Matthew Bullis has a question. Hi, Lloyd. Thank you. Um, I was, we were talking about old, older narrators just a few minutes ago. When I'm searching on the Voyager site for books by narrators that are, narrators that I want to hear, I find ones that say TB for talking book, and it says for all those it says withdrawn. And when I look into those records, it says that they were originally 16 RPM. Uh, I'm wondering um, if, if those can be gotten at all, or, and if they're ever going, you know, if they think they might convert those. Um. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, TBs were 16 RPM. Uh, the 33s, I don't even know what numbering system we were using, but uh, they are theoretically available. They should be available through your multi-state center. The library should be able to get you a copy if you want to play something, if you've got something to play it on. We don't have spare phonograph cartridges anymore, I don't think. It's the uh, a static 83D. If you have a player and you can find some place that can find one of those ceramic cartridges, uh, but that's what I was talking about. We don't have tapes for those. Uh, if we're going to do conversion, we're going to have to do it from the phonograph records, and uh, I don't know when that might occur. I would not plan on it happening real soon because we have a lot of other things to do. Okay. Um, the next question, Ruthann, please. Kirby Hill has a question. Yeah, Lloyd, great uh, presentation. Thank you. Um, about your series books, um, I was wondering if you, because I noticed some series are on the Bard site are incomplete, and like you'll have the, like for example in this uh, W. B. Griffin series, the Badge of Honor series, or the eighth book, uh, and that's it. You don't have the first seven. Is there any plans on eventually getting all those series that you have up there? put up there or at least reissue new recordings and put them up there thank well i think i should uh <clears throat> i can't talk about every i don't know about everybody's plans for everything we have a collection development section with uh, librarians who work on selecting things they were also the ones who selected what should be 
transferred over in the initial run of nearly 10,000 books uh, from RC to uh, DB. They've, they know about the criticism that the series are not complete. But <clears throat> if you're going to re-record something, that's, I don't know, four or $5,000 of studio time. Plus, uh, if you're going to make copies, that's going to be several thousand more dollars. Uh, do you devote that to older titles, or you, do you devote that to new titles? It's a question we always have to ask ourselves, because we can only record about 2,000 things, old or new, uh, per year, uh, out of the maybe 120,000 things that go into print each year. Now, a lot of things would never uh, fall in the purview of what NLS does. Uh, Neil wanted me to also mention, and I think it is important, the Voyager catalog is really where you want to go if you want to know if something is in the NLS collection. Because the NLS collection is cassettes and braille and digital. And uh, until all the cassette players are dead, uh, you need to consider the cassette books to be part of the collection. And don't just consider, well, because it's not digital, it's not there. It is there if it's on cassette. And uh, I know the sound's not as good. It's not as easy to navigate. Uh, and we're just not going to be able to convert everything over. There's probably 30,000 or 35,000 or more titles uh, that will never make it to digital. Some of those will be in series, and some of them are things that everybody is willing to forget. <laughs> okay, Ruthann, next question. Brian Albritton has a question. Pleasure to, to hear you talk, Lloyd. And um, what is the position on... Say the uh, scenario of a uh, patron who has a player, they don't have computer access, and another patron downloads and puts books on cartridges for them. And what's MLS's position on that uh, type of thing, if you if you know that? Okay, we got. Did you get that, uh, Lloyd? Okay. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I would recommend people listen to Brian Albritton's talk from back in November, where he demonstrated the players. That was. Uh, kind of uh, informal like my talk, but uh, he did cover an awful lot of ground in that talk, and if you haven't heard it, uh, I'd recommend that you go back and download that. I was also going to say, if you get this as a podcast later on, I should have said it at the beginning, it could be played on an NLS player. Uh, let me digress for just a minute. If you have audio stuff and you don't put NLS books on a cartridge, then you can put them put those audio files, whether they're MP3 or 3GP or WAV files, you can put them anywhere on the cartridge, the player or the flash drive, the player will find them. If you have NLS books on a drive, then you're going to need to, or probably RFB&D, DAISY books also, you're going to need to put those audio files into a folder called Audio Plus Podcasts. But uh, you may consider just devoting a drive to loose audio files, and uh, you don't have to worry about audio plus podcasts. Okay, uh, setting up cartridges for other people to borrow. I think we would like to know how much, how many books are actually circulating. I, we would be better off that books are uh, being downloaded through various people's accounts. Uh, you know, we would like to know, I think, how many times some of these digital books are circulating. Obviously, uh, we can't do that all the time, 
and I don't have an official answer for this, and I know this is going to come up a lot, but I would also say that as time goes on, the collection is going to build up. This problem is not going to be as severe uh, 9 or 12 months from now as it looks right now. We have about 1,000, about 1,100 books out on cartridge out of the 17,000 that are on BARD. And uh, libraries just yesterday got encryption software, so they will be able to very shortly begin to produce their own locally produced magazines or other locally produced books uh, in a format that's acceptable under the chafing men, but that's another subject. But uh, anyway, I, I think that it would be good to be able to keep track of who's, you know, how many copies are actually getting used. But uh, I don't have the last word on that subject, and I'm sure that uh, I don't know if anybody else really does either. Okay, Joan Leonard has a question. I like this is a great uh, presentation. I'm really, really enjoying it because I've always been interested in the uh, history of the whole talking book system, etc. My question is, um, we had uh, heard that there were going to be two gig cartridges available, and um, I was wondering if there's any uh, idea of when they might be coming out. Well, NLS doesn't really need two gig cartridges. Even the Bible is going to fit onto a single one gig cartridge. And uh, NLS has no plans in the you know, near or foreseeable future for issuing multiple books on a cartridge. So the incentive, the incentive for uh, larger cartridges is that as technology advances, flash memory becomes more and more dense. And uh, <clears throat> you reach a point, we initially thought we were going to be making cartridges of 128 megabytes or 256 or maybe 512, but we thought 512 might be kind of expensive. Well, we got to the game slightly later than we thought, the density of memory keeps going down and down, I mean, going up and up uh, every year. Uh, the main reason you're going to see two gig cartridges is because they will be practically as economical as the one gig. Uh, the price of a cartridge uh, charged to us, and actually the price that's charged to the distributors that decide to take this on, is based on uh, a commodity exchange called DRAM exchange. Uh, during any given time, uh, NAND flash memory gets traded uh, almost like other kinds of commodities, wheat or corn or, uh, oh, great. We don't want a Java update right now. Uh, I hope that's not going to mess me up. The uh, price of memory can vary from month to month, and I think that's one of the uncertainties that the nonprofits are uh, concerned about is uh, how do we keep the, uh, I mean, what price should we charge for this? We expect them to charge a reasonable price, but prices are going to fluctuate up and down, and the capacities are going to change over time, and I really don't know when the two gig drives are going to appear exactly. I would expect them, you know, within the next few months, but uh, can't guarantee that. Some of this depends on how fast people uh, grab up iPhones and uh, other products like that, which affects the whole market for NAND flash memory. Okay, I'm going to summarize. Oh, hush. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna... to... There we go. I think I'm still on. I'm going to summarize briefly. Uh, 
you guys, some of you asking some questions that you are should be on Bard Talk because um, cartridges are available through Perkins. See the list. See the website up there, Bard Talk. I think it's .com. Dave can correct me. And um, that's uh, and RFB and D. Lloyd can correct me if I'm wrong. Do, it does work on the on the cartridges now. Um, so um, that that's where that is. So I'm trying to summarize because we're getting questions that if you're joined the Bard list. And see the website. The, the, the answers are there. Uh, okay, John Media, you have a question? Uh, yes, thank you very much, Lloyd and Bob. Uh, the uh, uh, Apple is coming out with a, a, a so-called daisy player that will play Bookshare and some other files. I'm wondering with the iPod Touch or the iPhone or even the iPod Nano, which now does talk, Will uh, NLS ever allow a key so that you could use the iPod Touch or one of them to play the talking books? Well, you got to be uh, <clears throat> remember that when people talk about a Daisy player, uh, there are many organizations producing Daisy books in the MP3 audio format or in uh, XML text formats, and they're not encrypting them at all. So you've got a couple of things to overcome. You got encryption. You got the question of text-to-speech. Well, on those devices, you do have a text-to-speech synthesizer, but uh, we'll be certainly willing to talk to people that want to develop software for various platforms, and uh, we may be able to authorize some things. For the NLS material, they're going to need to be able to add one more audio decoder to the list of decoders they're already supporting. They'll need to decode AMR wideband extended or 3GP. The DAISY standard as it standards as they currently exist don't even allow 3GP. We kind of made our own exception to that. And so when you hear that something is DAISY compatible, it doesn't, uh, even if you dealt with the encryption issue, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be NLS compatible. Uh, we'll see what develops. I think a lot of things are going to happen over the next few years, and I wouldn't want to predict them all. Okay, Joanne Becker, and then I'll ask Lloyd to see how he's doing here. Joanne Becker, you're next. Actually, Lloyd, John asked the very question I was interested in knowing about how NLS is going to make decisions about future technologies and working with different platforms. So you've answered that. Thank you very much, and what a magnificent presentation. Thank you. Okay, Larry Lumpkin. Thank you. Yeah, Bob asked the question a minute ago, so, and I want, I'd like an answer. Uh, first of all, uh, you know, RFB and D is, is supporting uh, 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 desktop players, and I, I guess at some point I'd love some clarification on why they can do it and, and NLS can't. And will RFB it, it will RFB and D books play on the? Uh, can you uh, download those to a, a flash drive, and will they play in the uh, in the uh, NLS player? Thank you. Uh, RFB&D books that are downloadable come in two formats now. There's one format. I can't remember the names of them right offhand. One format was introduced a little over a year ago. It's protected WMA format. It was really designed for certain kinds of desktop players and players that could be authorized through Microsoft Media Player, not the iPod, uh, not the Nano. I don't think it plays... Uh, WMA, but uh, many other players 
probably including the digital, uh, the Olympus recorder that I have, could be used with that format. It's not really a DAISY format. Uh, they do take the book and divide it up into chapters and uh, subsections by creating a whole bunch of files and uh, putting them in order. And this was really designed, I would say, for the dyslexic market where uh, there is no agency providing a free player. So uh, in order for them to be able to use downloaded materials, they had to come up with a format that would run on a fairly large number of commercial uh, media players. There's a second format of RFB&D uh, books that uh, really are DAISY 2.02 books. The audio is MP3. They use the uh, digital rights management standard uh, version 1 that the DAISY consortium came up with. And uh, you'll need a user authorization key to uh, be put into your player. If you get a user authorization key from RFB&D, which is free, uh, you can play those books on an NLS player. You need to add that key to a player, just in a similar process to what you would do with a Victor Stream or a BookSense or some other player that's authorized to do RFB&D playback. You can play them on cartridges uh, if they are not ones. Cartridges that you get from a library are right protected, and uh, that's done so that people will not be able to record on them. But the cartridges that people can buy for themselves or flash drives, uh, you could play RFD&D books on those drives uh, if you get your encryption, your uh, decryption key. Okay, the last question of the evening, Barb O'Connor. Barb? Uh, wonderful, uh, wonderful presentation. Um, what is the cost of each of these digital players, just out of curiosity? Uh, you know, by the way, I'm willing to stay on here as long as people want. I don't know what Bob's rules are for that. We didn't really talk about that ahead, but uh, I'm uh, I'm not un I'm not completely unwound yet. <laughs> the cost of the player for us to get it manufactured is about $155. But that isn't actually the total cost because one of the things we have to do was license some software. We have to uh, obtain a license for the uh, decoder for AMR. That costs us a little over a dollar a player. And we have to have a license for the Enounce text or uh, timescale modification program that's used to speed up and slow down the audio without changing the pitch. That's uh, another small cost per player. But that, that's the ballpark that we're in. Uh, cassette players, by the time we quit bank making them, they were approaching $300. So uh, we figure we're uh, in a pretty good pricing position. We That's kind of where we thought the price would end up, or we hoped that's where it would end up, and uh, it did. Okay. Uh, oh, we love speakers that will go all night with us or something. Thank you, Lloyd. Uh, Playful Puppy has a question. Uh, yes, one question I was concerned about because I know there are blind people that don't have computers. So, will there be a development of a digital recorder? Say, for example, let's say that you didn't have a computer or I didn't, and yet we wanted to correspond with each other and tapes were no longer around. Is there a possibility that this company might make a digital recorder for the average user to purchase? Well, I wouldn't want to predict what would happen. You know, I would say that uh, anybody can record MP3 or WAV files with whatever they have, 
uh, and put them on an M on an NLS player so they can be played. And if you have multiple files and you want to make sure they get played in a particular order, put them in alphabetical order, uh, or you know prefix them with number, prefix their file names with numbers or something so that uh, the player will play them in a particular order. Uh, Right now, there are off-the-shelf recorders that can record MP3, quite a few of them. The Olympus recorder that I bought a couple of years ago records in WMA, so uh, my NLS player can't play that. I have to run it through a computer program uh, to transcode it from WMA to MP3, and then I can play that on an NLS player. But there are a lot of devices. They're not all real inexpensive, but... Uh, I think we'll probably see more of those in the future. The really, the real question will be uh, what kind of memory do they take and how do you get stuff transferred from one device to another. And uh, I just heard some interviews uh, being done someplace in the last couple of days on somebody's iPhone uh, and <clears throat> recorded for broadcast, and it sounded wonderful. I don't know uh, which audio codec they were using either, but... Uh, nor whether they were using some kind of external microphone to do it. But recorders that work in the digital domain are all over the place. They're not $25. I'm not sure you're going to see too many like that, but I haven't priced anything either. I'm, I might be surprised. Okay, Jane Jordan asks, with the RFB and D books, do you put them in the root directory or do they go into audio uh, plus podcasts folder? Uh, any kind of DAISY book like that, RFB and D, uh, a book that you might buy, a Portobraille Daisy book that you might buy from National Braille. Okay, I hope we got that one uh, at the end there. Josh wonders, Josh Hendrickson, the BRF files, when we get those, you get our Braille files, will that? Will you have a, a speech, what is it, text-to-speech engine or speech-to-text engine, whatever? Don't have Samantha, please. Uh, it's, it's in the back of some people's minds to put text-to-speech in our player, it's, it was pretty well ruled out in the early days of the design, and uh, there's enough room in there that could probably be done, but I would not uh, make any commitment as to when or uh, if NLS will do it. The, the quality is not great, and uh, just remember that people, for the most part, use NLS players for recreational reading, and they use them, uh, they would like to hear a human being narrated, if at all possible. Uh, I do think we're going to see more text-to-speech coming from a lot of different sources in the coming years, but uh, I'm not sure when NLS is going to get into that, or if. Uh, okay, uh, very good. Uh, Scott Williams has a question. Uh, yes, and again, I, I could reiterate uh, what other people have said, a very good presentation, Lloyd, and I'm glad Brian told me about this. I just found out about it at the last minute. Anyway, I suppose I'm as guilty as the next primate of the uh, uh, more you got, the more you want uh, greedy gulper syndrome, if you will. <laughs> as it stands now, Bard incorporates, oh, I'd say between 50 and 60 books a week uh, into the uh, database. Do you have aspirations of um, uh, doing more than one day a week incorporations or incorporating the books as they're available uh, no matter what day of the week it is? I really don't know that uh, there's a plan, you know, there's no plan to do anything much different along those lines, and if, if there was, I wouldn't know what it was. Uh, I think that we're 
for now, we'll probably stay on a schedule or kind of uh, similar to that. James Mackey has a question. Yes, uh, I would like to know when uh, you guys, if when the transition happens with the, you know, the cassette players. Uh, I have some friends at the Lighthouse that are concerned about the ease of working the the players, and I have told them that uh, the players are very easily accessible. Will everybody just automatically receive uh, a new uh, digital player? Okay. Uh, the regulations we operate under say that veterans had to have first preference for the uh, players and for new equipment. After uh, We asked that people over 100 get a shot at it because uh, it's taken us so long to do this that... Uh, if people are interested, they should get a player, and there are some that are using that. I think we've reached the stage now in almost all the states where we're past those two stages. Each state is doing issuance a little differently. Some are uh, trying to get them out to students first. Uh, many states, I think, are trying to uh, get players out to the people that request them first. I think generally that's a fairly good way to do things. But uh, if a pa person is a patron in good standing, uh, they're going to get contacted sooner or later about, uh, are you ready for a digital player? We're cranking them out. We're producing 20,000 players a month, and uh, we have crews going up to Allentown, Pennsylvania to do quality assurance on those things every week, um, and they're rolling out into the states. I used to say that a tsunami of players is coming to the library since they're built in Japan by uh, Shinano Corporation out of Ueda, Japan. Uh, the libraries have never seen this many players coming through their doors and going out the uh, mailroom door uh, as they have uh, in this transition. And so after a couple of years of this, most of the people that are eligible for a player are going to have one. It's, it's going pretty fast. The system could probably not take it a whole lot faster than it is going. At this point, we're building 80% standard players and 20% advanced players, but we can change the mix if there's enough call for that. Uh, there's nothing, no differential in price, really, to say that uh, if a lot more people want uh, advanced players, they couldn't get them. Uh, so some things may need to get uh, redistributed from time to time. But, uh, yeah, everybody's going to be able to get a player and it's going to happen a little faster than you might expect. Okay. We're going to go with two more questions, and then we're officially going to close. And if Lloyd wants to stay with you, that's great. We've had people do that, and we'll see where he wants to take it. Okay. Um, John Melia, you're next. Uh, two questions. One, uh, the the library in, Phil in Philadelphia, anyway, people are having problems is with because everybody who wanted uh, – advanced players are getting standard players, which they're not too happy with a lot of people. But my main question is the website. Do you know any tricks or anything that, that maybe we are not familiar with to, you know, any? because one thing I noticed on the website is I or downloaded one book and it had the sequel with it. And I thought that was kind of nice. It didn't download at the same time, but, it, but there it was. So if you didn't read it, you could, you know, get both of them. That was kind of nice. Well, I'm not sure. that I would say that's probably kind of maybe because they were issued uh, with sequential book numbers and went through our process at the same time. Uh, generally speaking, you know, if you, for instance, searched for books by a particular author, 
you would be more likely to find sequels. In some cases, multiple books, uh, you know, we may have issued something as a whole series of separate books at one point and then come back later and found that there's a, a, a new print edition out that has combined them. Uh, and uh, I know somebody got confused one time about the Chronicles of Narnia, for example. That originally was seven different books, but uh, the one that's on the NLS site, which is a conversion from audio tape, is uh, one complete book. Uh, the navigation is uh, by books at level one and by chapters at level two. Uh, and uh, uh, let's see, tricks for navigating the website. You know, I I, I think that uh, <clears throat> people found some inconsistencies about, uh, you know, do you use quotation marks or not and so forth. We found that we did have a little problem that uh, the people on the Bard Talk list pointed out, and uh, I believe it may have been fixed by now, where... Uh, some authors' names or narrators' names were being put in with a trailing space, and that threw the search off a little. Uh, you know, we're always looking for feedback of that sort, uh, where things don't seem to add up. Uh, we are, we make plenty of mistakes. But uh, tricks for uh, searching the website. You know, you can search by title, you can search by author. We may reorganize how we do the magazines. I'm not sure. Right now, that uses a combo box. Actually, some I guess the uh, author browse function also uses a combo box, or other sighted people sometimes call that a drop-down. Uh, I assume most of you know that with a combo box, you uh, want to put your screen reader into, uh, take it out of browse mode or into forms mode, which is depending on which screen reader you use and then do Alt-Down-Arrow to open a combo box, and uh, then you use up and down arrow keys to select the different uh, uh, options that are being presented there. We may change how we do the magazines. Uh, eventually, we're going to be updating the FAQ. Official NLS publications are kind of slow to update. We really think of them more as publications, and we try to work pretty carefully to get everything right and uh, spelled correctly and everything else before we put it up there. And uh, sometimes our process is a little slower. It doesn't quite run in Internet time. Okay. And uh, would you mind again, Lloyd, for my friend Jane here, she got, we got cut off a little, talk about the RFB&D books. Do they go on the root directory or in the audio um, what is it? plus podcasts, if you would mind doing that again? Okay. Uh, I guess I didn't know I wasn't. Oh, all right. They don't have to go in Audio Plus podcasts. Really, the only thing that should go there is audio files that are not parts of uh, Daisy Books of one sort or another. If they are RF, RFB&D or NLS or uh, some other uh, agency's uh, audio Daisy books, whether they're NLS format or not, they can be in the root directory or they can be in folders. Uh, putting them in Audio Plus podcasts will probably... Uh, I suppose they'll mess things up. As a matter of fact, I'm not really sure that it's that the player would find them uh, correctly if you put them there. Well, Lloyd, on behalf of Accessible World, I want to thank you so very much for being here, and please officially thank NLS for this new player and what it's been trying to do for blind people for low these many years. Yeah, sometimes we beat on you, sometimes, but we all care, and uh, I mean that. I, I'm as my friend Joni said, 
books, books, and more books. You've really, uh, you guys have really broadened our world. Sure, there's other places you can go. There's all kinds of reasons. But you get a, your reader advisor. You get help. Guys like Brian Albritton are there to help you and you. And please convey our thanks here at Accessible World for all the great work you guys are doing. I want to uh, officially uh, close this event. If Lloyd wishes to stay on and chat with you, this this is great. So for recording purposes, this is closed. I thank Dave Bond and Ellen Lemley for all their help. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you very much for coming, ladies and gentlemen.